Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. So I am James. So yeah, I guess I'm opening this series uh, <laughs> about Trickster Jesus. Um, that terminology is a little bit uh, unique to me, so I had to think about it a little bit. I actually looked it up on the Calgary website, and I found out that the public library is doing a four-part install in the city, kind of highlighting Indigenous artists. And so they have, at different ones, Saddletown, different, and up at Crowfoot, they actually have kind of a trickster, the trickster character display up there, and it's a book, and you open, it's kind of a giant art piece. So it's kind of cool. So I was looking at that uh, online. There was a nice little video there, and it said this, um, indigenous cultures often have a character which is part of their mythology called the trickster. Trickster stories are an integral component to indigenous cultures as they teach about right and wrong in life. Tricksters are full of adventure, humor, wisdom, foolishness, generosity, and always, and always end with an important life lesson being taught through them. And so then they described the different ways that tricksters can appear to people in this mythology and these stories. Uh, for the Blackfoot, he is a man. For the Ticina, he appears as either a coyote or a raven. For the Stony Nakoda, as a spider. That's a scary trickster. My wife would want me to squash that tr trickster and flush it down the toilet or something. Uh, and for the Plains Cree and Métis, he is a rabbit. But for us today, maybe we can, it gives us a different way to modulate seeing who Jesus is if we see him as trickster Jesus. And not in a sense that he wants to deceive or be nefarious uh, in a negative way, but in a way he wants to use stories or parables to kind of get behind uh, our conventional ways of seeing things or our ideologies or the things we kind of assume are the normal. Like this is just the normal for everybody. And Jesus is always coming to disrupt the normal, particularly if it is oppressive. And so he wants to get behind that. Now, his, his opponents, as per usual in the New Testament, the poor Pharisees, you know, they get up from the mat and he knocks them down <laughs> and they get back up. They're tough, like they keep coming back. But he, he in confronting a group like that who have a very strong moralistic sense and for the Pharisees they really believed why were they moralistic we could ask is they were moralistic because they believed that would bring back the reign of God and it would jettison the Romans from their part of the world and so they believed if we can be really moral if we can really reclaim the law in the Old Testament we can really live this out in a greater level then God will reward us by expelling the Romans. And so that's why they got so worked up about rules and laws and stuff like that, is that they wanted the Romans out and they thought this was the means. Other groups did it in other ways. Okay, Sadducees, other people. But this is the way the Pharisees did it. But to deal with people like this who have a very kind of hard-boiled view of how things are, parables are needed. 
And so I love this poem uh, by Emily Dickinson. Uh, it's called Tell the Truth But Tell It Slant. And all, all her poems start with just the first line of the poem. It's not the greatest, but it's fine. Uh, anyhow, it goes like that. It's probably super. I don't know why I said that. Uh, so tell the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight. The truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased. With explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. And so this was her way of kind of saying this same. Now, I don't know if Emily Dickinson is a trickster. Maybe she is. But she's a trickster? Oh, okay. So she's a trickster. That has been established. Uh, but, you know, this idea of telling the truth, saying things in a way that help get behind people's defenses isn't an invasion, it's actually a form of liberation. And so that's, that's what she's saying is the process is for most of us because we do get stuck. We get lazy, our religious systems get calcified, they become legalistic, and then you need some sort of slant truth to kind of get behind the way you're holding things together to kind of show you a deeper reality of who God is. And I love that. I love that about trickster Jesus is that he comes with this liberative agenda to free us, not to be uh, uh, wrongly subversive, but in a good way to liberate us. So that's pretty neat. Um, and so that we're going to look at this story. It's actually three stories, but kind of one story or one story in three modes. So I'm going to read the whole passage and it's kind of long. Uh, but I'm going to do that. Oh, I was supposed to read that scripture. Okay, so I'll read this scripture. Um, this is from Exodus 36, and I put emoji hearts just to show how relevant I am and with the young people. So I've done it. I am relevant. Uh, I just thought it was funny, actually. Um, but it says this, I love this agenda of God, and I guess this is what I wanted to say, too, that this is... God's agenda isn't this outward uh, behavior or moralism or whatever, but even in Israel's tradition, it's very clear what God's uh, goal is, where he says, I want to give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. What a promise that is of God to help us to be attuned to him and to one another and to be in that kind of give and take or relationship where we're really connecting. I think that's a very cool thing. Um, and so let's look at the beginning of the passage here, and we'll kind of get a sense of why he tells three stories, because, oh, is there another scripture? Oh, yeah, that's later. That's later. So, let's, yeah, let's do that. Um, so here, we're going to read this scripture from Luke 15, 1 and 2, and this is what it says. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around him, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, uh, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so common critique of Jesus is that he's hanging out with undesirables. Uh, this bothers the Pharisees, and so they criticize him. And how, how will Jesus deal with that? Well, as we're just saying, he's going to be a trickster. He's going to say something truthful, but say in a kind of a slant way to speak into their lives. And this is what, as we read the passage, it goes on into three stories. 
And here it is. It says, then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, for I have my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. See what he's doing there? And he's going to just push, push this even further. Next story. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Bam, <laughs> the second shot. And then the third one, which is the big story. I'm sure we've never heard it, the prodigal son. It's totally new. I just, just I was like, wow, it's a good story. Never read that one. Uh, but this is what it says. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf and he has, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never, never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so a classic story. Initially, and what can you say that's new about this story for some of us? I've heard this so many times, <laughs> a lot. 
Um, but there are, there are some elements that can come home for us. And it's interesting, even when we read stories like this one, sometimes I really, as some of us may know Ray Aldred. Uh, he's a Cree Indian, uh, Treaty 6. And Ray says often with stories, we try to analyze them or figure them out and stuff like that. And he says sometimes we just need to listen to the story and let it do its work. And so we're going to try and listen to this story and let it do its work a little bit. So initially, it's a tragic story. A father loves his son, but his son is foolhearted and says, I want half of my, inher or my inheritance. And so the father grants that. And you already get kind of an image here of an unusual father. And these are, and we can think as the Pharisees would have heard this. As they heard this story, they would have said, there's no way I would do that. I wouldn't sell half my property or, or sell all my stuff and give half the inheritance to one of my sons. It's already an unusual story from the get-go from the Pharisees' perspective. And so it's a tragic story. This guy goes, I don't know what the, uh, the contemporary parable could be. Like maybe he goes clubbing for a couple months. I was trying to think of what, because I'm cool, right? Emoji hearts. So I was trying to like... What's the thing? There, thank you. Thank you. And NFTs. He bought some NFTs. <laughs> okay. Uh, so he did a very offensive thing, though, to do this, particularly as the younger son. The younger son has no claim. You know, the older son has all the kind of the social power with the father, not the younger. Anyhow, this picture of the father is already radical and strange to Pharisees' ears. And so maybe even as we listen, we might start to understand maybe the father, the father in the story isn't who we think he is. Maybe there's something about this story for us. It strikes me too that the son falls into the lowest of low situations for a Jew. He has only one job he can find once his cash runs out, and it's to feed pigs. And if you're feeding pigs, and if we know anything about Jewish culture, this is the most ritually unclean and offensive animal to Jews. And so Jesus is telling a story that everybody would get. This guy has hit rock bottom of rock bottom. Like if this is your job, that is horrible. Uh, and also you're like kind of, you're, you're uh, you know, want to eat the food. I was trying to think of the words. <laughs> Salivating at the prospect of eating eating the food that they're eating. I was like, what is the grossest food I thought that I would, you know, if I got to my lowest point, I thought if it was mushrooms, you know, my wife loves my, I'm just like, that would be the grossest thing. If I had nothing, but there were just mushrooms. I'm like, that would be my lowest. So this is, this is the low, and maybe you could think about the most horrible food you would be. Okay. Um, and so he decides to go home. Uh, note that he does not go home to be reunited with his father or be to reunited with his brother. He has no false kind of sense that I can just waltz back in and reclaim my spot in the family. This isn't a reconciliation story uh, in, from his perspective. He's just like, I just need some food security in my life. That's all. That's the only reason I'm doing this. And so he's humiliated, he's ashamed of who he is or what he's become. And shame, as we know, is a powerful force. Shame is a sense that there's something wrong with who, the, who we are, that there's something wrong with our identity. 
Like I'm no longer a son or a daughter or a child of the Father. I'm alienated. I'm broken. There's a fissure in the relationship, and I am maybe at the level of servant, like in that, in those categories. Um, instead of feeling temporarily abandoned, we start, if we are in his shoes, we start to think maybe we deserve to be abandoned. Maybe there's something about us that's so broken and flawed that we deserve to be kind of put in a lower strata. I remember years ago I got a summer job in a town called Oyen. Everybody knows where that is, right? Yeah. In case you don't, you know where cereal is, right? Because it's just east of cereal. Got it? Right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. There you go. So I'm making a joke. It's north of Medicine Hat. But clearly some people travel in the byways and highways of Alberta. But I did live in Oyen for two months. Um, and so I got a job there. Things were rough at home, a single parent home with my mom. And so, and it was getting very sketchy whether I'd be allowed to live in the house uh, for a whole bunch of complicated reasons. And so I went and I worked, got my friend's jobs. We went to Oyen, it's a party town, like 400 people or something. Uh, but we lived in Oyen. It was actually kind of fun. And when I came home, I remember coming home to the house and being like, am I going to be allowed back in? Because I didn't know. And so I went to the door and I knocked on the door, which was crazy even thinking back to that, to have to knock on your door. And my mom came to the door and I said, am I allowed to live here for grade 12? Can I live at home? And I didn't know what was going to happen. Like I, would, like, I honestly didn't have a backup plan. And my mom kind of waited out for a second. And she said, fine. You can live here for grade 12. And she just kind of walked away. And I went down. I kind of <laughs> slinked down to my room in the basement. Relieved, but certainly not welcome. Uh, so the prodigal son is feeling some of the same dread and fear in returning home. He's ready to go face the shame of seeing his father's older brother and the servants. He's wondering if he's going to receive a cold reception and worried about this. And this is one of the fundamental characteristics of trauma, I think, is to be isolated and alone, to live in shame for who you are, to run survival scenarios in your head by yourself. That's trauma that just isolates people on their own. By myself, what am I going to do? This son is representative of other sons, daughters, and children who face the same feelings and dilemmas in their lives. This is a state of being for many people. And it's felt at a fundamental level in your body. You know, we taught this is a parable or a story, and it's kind of can be cartoony or whatever. But in real life, it's something that people, it's like that shame feels like lava being poured over your head, like that hot feeling your whole body has. Um, and this is why this next line from Trickster Jesus is pretty incredible, because he's speaking to the Pharisees, but he's also speaking to us, or for anybody who's felt those kinds of feelings, um, like the younger son. He says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. What a verse. If the Pharisees were a bit provoked by the earlier verse, where the father willingly gave over the son's inheritance, this one would take the cake. You know, and the Pharisees are not known to being the calmest customers uh, when they get offended, <laughs> they get sort of, 
they get activated in trauma language. Fight, flight, they're like, we are gonna punch you out or hit you with rocks. So that's kind of their the way they roll. Um, so they would not like this son and they would not like how this father responded. This would really aggravate them. Uh, they would think, what a loser. Well, I don't know if they would think that, but maybe some version in their mind. Guarantee that they would have a bunch of counter scriptures set to go in their minds. Not their hearts, mind you, because their hearts were angry and annoyed and frustrated and outraged. And sometimes when we hear something we don't want to hear, we go straight to our brain to figure out how to fend it off. Oh, I've got all these reasons right away even though something's kind of getting jostled loose, maybe something slant has been said to us. We're like, no, you stupid. Like you just kind of like, you try to fight it initially, um, which is really fun to watch when someone's doing that. Uh, okay, and so let's go back to this verse again. Remember what Ray said, Ray Aldred? Let the story do its work. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, or he ran to his child, threw his arms around him, her, them, and kissed them. I'm going to say it one more time, just to make it awkward. <laughs> But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for them. He ran to them, threw his arms around him, her, and kissed them. Henry Nouwen has famously written a book about this particular scene, and it's called Return of the Prodigal Son, a story of homecoming. Anybody ever read this book? Oh, awesome. Yeah, great. Um, so it's a story, it came from an experience he had uh, viewing a picture painted by Rembrandt in 1699. And so we have the picture here, it's kind of cut off a little bit, but it's uh, now I'm sort of accidentally bumped into this picture one day. Uh, the, the original is found in a museum in St. Petersburg in Russia. And he was so taken by it. And you know, we probably, maybe a lot of us have seen this picture around kind of casually. Um, and it's on the cover of the book, and so you can see it, but he, now in, in the book kind of breaks down the piece of art, because like typical of art, if you look at it in a cursory way, it just kind of washes through, but if you actually start focusing on different parts of the painting, then different elements will come alive, and you, he's using this, uh, I forget the name of that art style, where you use shadows, you do darkness and light, light in strong contrast, like Caravaggio does, but this is what he's doing here. And so you can see even in this picture, where does your eye kind of go? Uh, your eye really goes to the hands. Um, you're drawn to the hands or maybe the father's face or each of us are drawn to different things. And uh, that's the older brother to the far right. And that's some dude, I don't know. I don't know what he's doing back there. He's doing something, hanging out. Getting a free meal, probably. He's like, free meal, sweet. Uh, so, um, 
So let's go first to, so we're going to break this down. Let's go first to the next slide. So this is, oh, did I take a pic? Oh, no, that's you. Good. I was, I was worried that I had screenshotted that into the thing, which would make me way less cool than I've been trying to achieve. Uh, so you see this picture of the father. You get an, a sense of his face uh, and what his face looks like. Um, it's it's a, a father's face filled with calm, peace, relief, and compassion at his son who has returned. Exodus 34, and this isn't a new idea. If we go way back to Exodus 34 when the Ten Commandments were given to Moses right before all that was done and Moses made those Ten Commandments. Scripture says this, Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, to, with Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord, or the first things God said to Moses. He said, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, a slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And so this is a critical scene in the Old Testament where God's giving the commandments, yet we start with these very significant descriptors of God. And there's five of them there. Richard Balcom says of this passage that the word love is tied closely with the word faithfulness. God continues, he says this, God continues his commitment to the covenant people even when they abuse that relationship and reject God's ways. So it's amazing there's a connection between this kind of proto-passage, this important precursor to all of Israelite history. Hey, awesome. No, that's fine. He's backing out now, I think. Uh, but we see this over and over throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, you see this idea, the same verse repeated again and again as we try to allow the text to do its work as we read it in kind of an intertextual way. And so we see in the Psalms, it's repeated three times. Oh, he's back. Uh, <laughs> this is, I'm going to read these three verses. Well, Darcy closes the door. Uh, from, from the Psalms 86.15, But you, Lord, are, compa are compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. 103.8, Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. 145.8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. And I love the way that kind of stacks up. As Israel sings, meditates, reflects over and over on this characteristic of these characteristics of God, where maybe they're like me or maybe they're like you, where sometimes these are nice words and you go, that's great, but I don't feel it or I'm not experiencing that, or that just doesn't seem to be my reality, and how do I, how does that come home? How does that land for me in some way that makes sense? Even in the body, that sense of body positivity where you're like, oh, I, I, I feel something real, because I think God wants to do that in our hearts, like kind of that invisible spacey part in there, <laughs> but also in our actually physical sense of ourselves. Um, the word gracious from the Hebrew is translated, and the idea, is, uh, the idea is to bend or stoop in kindness to an inferior, don't love that word, <laughs> but uh, to another person, uh, 
to favor or bestow. I love that, to bend or stoop in kindness. And if we go back to our picture, back, look at the way the Father is kind of descending to the Son uh, to embrace him. And so that's beautiful. And so the next thing we see in the picture is the hands. And the hands are very fascinating because if you look at them closely, you'll notice one is a more feminine hand and one is a more masculine hand. And that's kind of a, that's very fascinating that he painted that that way to express different characteristics of God and not just to kind of make God one, kind of in one way, but to show God encompasses all all these aspects of humanity and that God represents sometimes what, what we need him to. You know, we can, what we need, what we're, we're saying, God, what I need to see in you. And so he's creating, expanding this image of who God is through these hands, which I think are beautiful. In the next slide, we see his feet. It looks like a junior high kid after gym class, you know, one shoe on, one shoe off, one shoe torn. Um, but it's quite something, even the red on his robes is very simple, kind of grubby robes. Um, and he, I'll read directly what he says. He says this, uh, the caressing feminine hand of the father parallels the bare wounded foot of the son, while the strong masculine hand parallels the foot dressed in a sandal. Is it too much to think that the one hand protects the vulnerable side of the son? while the other hand reinforces the son's strength and desire to go and get on with life. That's a pretty cool statement. Okay, next slide. Ooh, I don't, has anybody got the Star Wars theme, like the Darth Vader? Like this is, this is the older brother. And you can see if you look, actually, if you go to the next slide and you look, oh, try the next slide. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's keep, keep going back, back. Yeah, let's just stay there. The older brother is to the right, but you see there's a gap between them, and you see the brother standing tall and erect, and he's actually taller than both the father and the son, as if he's kind of standing straight up judging, which is kind of cool, uh, in expressing who the older brother is. and uh, He kind of comes across as an unlikable fellow, uh, grumpy, pouty, no compassion, no delight to see his brother arrive home. He stands back and apart, deeper in the shadows. Um, he's definitely a prickly and even dangerous character. And it's and we're to understand if we read Bible history and stuff that this is a cipher for the Pharisees. This is who they are. Jesus is pointing kind of, you are the ones. We've had all these three stories where it's like rejoice, hooray, we found the lost thing, the sheep, the coin, and now the son. Uh, but he has none of those feelings. He's devoid of that. He's a workaholic. He's driven. He, he focuses on kind of the externals of performance. And so he alienates himself. God's not alienating him. The younger son isn't. The servants aren't. But he's, he's kind of created a barrier between himself. And it's quite something in the story where you see, it could be the story of the two prodigals, because you see Jesus, the father run to the younger son, but in a sense, he leaves the party and he goes and pleads with him. That's kind of a beautiful picture too, of saying, and Jesus' grace to the Pharisees saying, 
you still have a space, you still have a place here in my father's kingdom. Please, like this, this call for them to come out of their alienation and their distance, come close. I want to embrace you too, but it has to be, there has to be kind of a two-way street here. I'm not just going to put you in a bear hug against your will. Like you need to, you need to take a step as well. And so you see that neat part of the story. Um, and so then we go to the next one. <laughs> okay, next. Oh, yeah, I just thought that looked like Cyrano de Bergerac or something, or I don't know who that guy I tried to, I looked, actually looked up the Three Musketeers because I was like, when did Alexander Dumas write that book? Was it close? It was 150 years apart, but I was like, that guy could be in the one of the Musketeers for sure. Okay, and, and this, is, this is not coming through in the slide, but these are the servants who are there, and they're observing the scene. They're just observers of what's happening. Oh, it's over there. It's great. Yeah. Thank you. Did someone just say that? Yeah. It's much better over there. And so they're in the shadows, but they're also very attentive to what's happening. This is an amazing scene unfolding. Um, and the next one. And this is a kind of the beautiful, maybe center of the picture where you see the son with the shaved head and he's kind of leaning against the father in kind of relief. You can sort of get that sense of relief and peace that he's being embraced and brought back into fellowship and communion with his father. And you know, we earlier we said the son was maybe armored up and ready to, I'm gonna be rejected or these feelings. Um, but what he receives from the father is a giant, unavoidable signal of safety. You know, where the a running dad. You ever seen a running dad when their kid's in trouble or something? You that you see intention often with a dad who's like, I want to protect or help my kid because they're in trouble. And you see you see a dad take off or a mom. Moms are good at it too. Equal. Uh, but you see in this story a dad uh, running like a nut job uh, who runs right through the brick wall of contemporary social codes in Israel at this time. God, God or the father in this story embarrasses himself. Others might turn away from the scene because it is so outrageous and intimate, so vulnerable and open, full of care and love. And for some repressed, alienated people, that's terrifying. That kind of intimacy and openness is like, it's scary. Because it's like, whoa, that's, that invites something out of me that I don't know if I have the capacity to do or to be that open or to be that vulnerable. And so we see reunion, reconnection, regulation that is so needed in our lives and our bodies. Uh, you know, I love my son has a, or the two stories about my middle son who's 23. When he was two, uh, my wife would be, uh, you know, at home with the kids taking care of them and when I came home, it was like, you know, I was, I don't know, what, what, whatever superstar you want to be. He would come, he always ran around with his mouth wide open, drooling on his shirt. That's just what he did. And he would, I could hear him coming. I'd come in the front door and you'd just hear like, because ah, 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 that's just kind of how he moved around. And he'd, I'd hear him do, 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 to the front door. And it was just great reunion, right? Where you you'd pick him up and you'd hug and he'd be so happy and I'd be so happy. And you just have this sense of connection and relationship. It's just a beautiful kind of 
I don't know. And it really bugged my wife. <laughs> She's like, I've been taking care of him all day. He's never excited to see me. <laughs> anyway, it's a little inside thing. Uh, and my son now has a cat named Goomba. And Goomba does this when we go over and visit Goomba. He'll come and sit on, and then he'll come over and give you a headbutt. Anybody have a cat? And they'll come over and they'll doot uh, on your head because they kind of want to check in. Like, are we cool? Are we okay? And you're like, yeah, we're great, Goomba. And you just have a nice little visit. Um, so I'm not, maybe I'm saying God is like Goomba, the cat. He wants to check in with us uh, in a good way. Um, and so, so yeah, I think we're going to kind of wind up with that a little bit. I want to say one final thing. Um, and so I th think we can conclude with this. I think it's fair to all the verses we have read to show that there's a pipeline, a through line, a zip line from the Old Testament to the New that God is gracious and compassionate. That he's running towards those who lost and have an inkling to turn, to turn towards home in him. And let me expand on this story ever so slightly to say something about our own selves. I think that it would be fair to say that even in our own parts, even in our own hearts, we have a part of us that is a bit of a wayward part and a part of us that is maybe a little bit of an older judgy, uh, older brother part, or at least I do. Um, and perhaps uh, we... We, like God, need to welcome home and abandon broken parts of our own lives. Maybe there's, there's different sides of that in us, and we need to welcome that into our awareness and our devotional life. Uh, the goal, I think, in this story is not to be the prodigal, the main prodigal, or the backup prodigal Pharisee. Uh, I think the goal in the story, or the sense that Jesus is trying to say, maybe in a sort of slant way, is to, to move towards being like the Father. It's like, can we get, can we, is our spiritual life taking us in that direction? Because that's what Jesus wants for those Pharisees in this story, even as disciples who are listening, even us as disciples or followers or semi-quasi-followers, <laughs> wherever we're at. It's like this kind of like, can you move like this towards the Father or towards being like the Father? Um, a welcoming and affirming presence in the world. Amen.